This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. A great hand reached out of the dark and grasped mine for a moment, mightily and tenderly. I said to myself, the veil between, though very dark, is very thin. everyone and welcome to The Sin Place, the film geek radio podcast devoted to discussions of religion, faith, and spirituality in film. Your hosts for this episode are Ken Moorfield, that's me, and Todd Truffin. That's me. This is episode number two for September 2011 and our topic is Run Lola Run. This episode is not a spoiler-free discussion, so if you have not yet seen Run, Lola, Run and do not want plot spoilers, now would be a really good time to pause this and check out one of the other great podcasts on Film Geek Radio. So, Todd, any uh, prefaces you want to make about Run, Lola, Run before we jump in? I think the only preface I would make is that Regardless of whatever spiritual message we may come out with, Roll Run, it has a great soundtrack for working out. Absolutely. I think it might be a good idea, even though this is not a spoiler-free discussion, so I'm assuming everyone's read the film or seen the film, to give a brief plot synopsis for the people maybe who haven't seen it in a while. Todd, do you mind doing that? Sure. At its heart, we've got a story here about Lola, hence the title, Run, Lola, Run. Uh, Lola and her boyfriend, Manny. Manny has managed to get himself into a jam with a local gangster, and he needs to come up with a large sum of money in 20 minutes. And the film itself is three repetitions of this 20-minute time period that Lola runs from her apartment to go help Manny and along the way she has various obstacles and each iteration of the sequence provides slightly different interactions with these obstacles and different outcomes and I I think that's basically it in a nutshell. And we should say part of the trouble that he's in is that he needs 100,000 marks to give to his gangster boss. And so in addition to reaching Manny within 20 minutes, she has to figure out some way of securing 100,000 marks uh, right. within that time period. And there's different ways that she goes about doing that. Yes. And the other interesting aspect, of I think, of the story is that in between these iterations, we get these little scenes where Manny and Lola are kind of lolling about in bed and having a conversation with each other. So the the whole sequence of the film is action. Well, we get the setup, we get action, we get kind of a respite of conversation, action, respite, and then the final time through the action. I do want to, I want to say a couple things about that. those intermediate scenes of Manny and Lola on the bed. Before I do, I guess I should mention, too, since no podcast would be complete without some shameless self-promotion, 
that I have written about Tick Wars films in general and Run Lola Run specifically in my essay, What's Lola Running From?, which is available for purchase in the film anthology Faith and Spirituality in Masters of World Cinema Volume 2. So if you're a big fan of Tickwer or a fan of this podcast, fan of Tickwer after this podcast, and you want to think about his films in you know a spiritual focus, then I definitely recommend uh, both Volume 1 and Volume 2, but Volume 2 especially of the Faith and Spirituality and Masters of World Cinema. So that this concludes our commercial, and now back to regular programming. <laughs> well, I guess the big question from a spiritual or faith-based perspective it starts with these three different versions of the events that happen. Lola tries to help out Manny, and fails in the first iteration, concluding with her being shot as he, she and Manny are trying to rob a store. And as she seems to be passing out, dying in the movie seems to be ending rather prematurely. We're fading out into this scene on the bed that you mentioned. And then all of a sudden, the film flashes backwards to the point in which she gets the call and she tries a different version of events in order to help Monty. That doesn't work, and we get another reset until the third one finally finally does work. And I think one of the, the biggest questions that we have to ask is, what exactly are these three versions? Are they alternate realities? Are they different things that actually did happen in some way? Are they things that might have happened or could have happened? Is Lola dying and thinking about, I wish I had done this. No, that wouldn't work. I wish I had done that. Is Lola, in each of these iterations, imagining in her head what might happen as she's scrolling through, kind of like the short story in Occurrence at, at Owl Creek Bridge, where we find out, oh, this didn't really happen. This is just in her head until we get to the last one where it actually happens. Are any of these iterations, quote, real, Oh, or are all of them equally real, or is one of them real? And if one of them is real, what are the rest of them? Having sort of articulated that in a mismatched way, I will give you the harder job of trying to make a preliminary stab at, at answering that question. So uh, what exactly do you think we're looking at in these three instances that we're calling iterations? Well, what exactly is going on, I, I don't think I'm, I'm yet willing to say or try to say, partly because one of my interests in talking about this film was to figure that out. Um, oh, that was smooth. You're going you're gonna to push the question back on me. <laughs> well, I, I will say this. Uh, one of the things that I did find interesting looking at this film is that by itself, when you only look at the kind of the plot parts of this film, you're hard-pressed. I think one is hard-pressed to get any deep meaning. In many ways, it's a very classic action-type movie. But Tickler doesn't let us off that easy. The film begins with this whole series of kind of philosophical ruminations. It begins with a couple of quotes. One of them from T.S. Eliot that I'm going to bring up now is we shall not cease from exploration and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. 
And I think here we get this clue, this idea of exploring possibilities and that, in a sense, the purpose of the exploration is to kind of end up back where we started, but knowing it. Right. And so perhaps what we're looking at here is regardless of what the characters are experiencing, as the filmmaker, we're looking at what Tickler is doing and as film watchers, as us, you know, we are being able to explore these different possibilities so that in that last iteration, we are coming to it perhaps fresh, but also we know it. Mm-hmm. And yeah. and perhaps it is then that knowing that allows for success. Well, I was a good student in the sense of I knew that I knew the quiz was coming, so I actually <laughs> thought about what what was my answer, and I jotted down before the podcast if if I tried to answer the 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 sort of big question, you know, or the bigger questions. Well, what does this mean? What meaning do we posit to these various iterations? I came up with four, maybe maybe four and a half, really I think four theories or hypotheses that I will offer quickly. I think in the order from least favorite to most favorite, that is to say I, I, I can see how someone would make these arguments, but it goes from the ones that I, I say, okay, this is a possibility, but I, I ultimately reject it to arrive at what I think it means. So quickly, I think the first possibility that I don't want to discount is that it doesn't mean anything. I think that there's any number of reviews that one could read that says the film is a triumph of style over substance. It's got a great soundtrack. It's got a flaming redhead running through. There's a great beat. There's lots of animation and tricks, but the tricks are all, the film tricks are all basically smoke and mirrors that knock your socks off, but like source code, when you get into the parking lot and begin thinking about it, you say, well, that doesn't really make any sense or doesn't really mean anything, that it's just sort of a kinetic, visceral experience uh, and mm-hmm. is not intended to give any thematic meaning. The second, I would say, is, is kind of a meaning. Perhaps the film could be constructed or uh, interpreted in such a way as positing a kind of cyclical determinism that is to say we are forced to do the same things over and over again. It really doesn't matter what we do or what choices that we make. There's never any, uh, the universe or life doesn't unfold in a linear fashion towards some end that we then judge whether we've acted wisely, that whether, you know, Lola picks wisely in one sense and is able to get the money and lives to be happily ever after, or whether she makes a mistake and they both end up dead, it doesn't matter because every 20 minutes that clock is going to recycle and everyone's going to start from the beginning and we just go through, you know, we're destined in a kind of Sisyphean way to relive the same choices over and over again. That might tie into the Elliot quote, uh, that some people might sort of see the Elliot quote as very pessimistic. I think the third possibility that I would posit is that it's postulating or giving us an illustration that saying life is basically random, that it's tied. I've heard a lot of critics use the word or the concept of chaos theory, which is to say that 
there are good and bad outcomes, but there's no necessary connection between our choices and the results. In the book or the essay that I wrote on Tick where I, I borrow a lot from Stuart Kellert's definition of chaos theory, which says that it's not that things are totally random, but that any system that's sufficiently complex, you can't predict regardless of whether or not you think you can predict. And so it will have an appearance of randomness because there's no way of really knowing what the outcome will be, but that in in some ways, whether we posit it as being totally random or chaos, we end up at the same point, which is to say there's no good and bad choices. There's only good and bad outcomes, and there's no necessary connection between our choices and our outcomes. And then the fourth is probably where I finally come down, which is to say the universe is in some way or another morally determined to a greater or a lesser degree. That is to say there are good and bad outcomes, but the good and bad outcomes are largely a function of the choices that we make without being so strenuous like the Puritan to say, if you do good, then you will have a good outcome. Things will be happy for you. And if you do poorly, there will be a bad outcome. It doesn't seem to be very rigid. And yet there seems to be kind of a a general feeling of karma that there are certain things the universe or the director recognizes as being good that stores up karma points for you. And if you've got enough karma points, then good things happen, but if you don't have enough, then bad things happen. And I think people who want to read the film that way will look very closely at the variations of the three iterations and look for clues in the variations as to, well, what's different about the third variation that allows for or causes a positive outcome to come? Now, I said four, maybe five. I, I could break down four into 4A or 4B in, in the sense of whether or not the ultimate differences are moral in a Judeo-Christian way, whether there's some kind of God that is looking over Lola and rewarding her for her behavior, or 4B being that there is, in those intermediate red scenes of them on the bed, there is a notion of Lola's love for Manny being so strong that Harry Potter-like, since I'll reference the last podcast, she doesn't accept that, that somehow or another there's something strange or exceptional about her that it allows her to keep moving towards a solution until an optimal out- outcome comes. I couldn't, I'm sure there are other possibilities for reading the film, but those are the four that I came up with. Do any of those seem more or less resonant with you? Do you want to explore any of them before we sort of settle on one, or do any of them jump out to you? Look at the first one, just, you know, your least favorite, that it's a meaningless, just sort of style exercise. Why does it have to and be anything? <laughs> why, do, why does it have to? And And I guess as a... A person who looks at literature and film, I would say if it was going to just be a style exercise, we wouldn't spend five minutes at the beginning of the film getting fancy T.S. Eliot quotes and having that, that, that sequence where the camera's meandering through the crowd, settling upon various characters, and we're getting this little treatise about humanity being the most mysterious species on the planet 
and there's questions that lead to question. I mean, there wouldn't have been all this philosophizing going on, right? If it was if it was supposed to mean nothing. I, um, I would also argue that Tom Tickwer probably wouldn't have made eight or nine or ten very successful films. That is to say, I think anyone can have an occasional uh, success, but that in order to continue to make other movies that are around this theme, that if all that real, if all that interested him, he's very interested in style, but if that was all that interested him, I don't know that he would return to some of these themes in the international in terms of cause and effect or winter sleepers in terms of chance or randomness. And so I think looking at his body of films insulates me as a, a literature professor or a film critic from that student notion of, oh, you're just reading something, you know, you're just reading something into it and sort of saying, no, I think that you know, there's a body of work there that announces I'm interested in these themes yes. and not just in this style. You know, I'm not just interested in being a stylist. And I w would like to agree with you and say it's a stylish movie. Oh, absolutely. As it, you know, it's beautifully shot, um, and we do have these striking design elements of I mean, our main character with this. It's not just red hair. It's shocking red hair. Easily seen. The style is very prevalent, but there's more there. Yeah, and will there be viewers who like it on that level? Absolutely. Sure. Will there be viewers who feel no particular need to go beyond that level style and I enjoyed it and I don't it doesn't need to mean anything for me absolutely what, what I'm saying and the only thing that I'm saying is that I think it's perfectly possible to enjoy it strictly on a stylistic level and not try to dig deeper into it what I would object to is the person who says well you really can't because there's nothing there right you if you want to leave it on the stylistic level because you enjoy it, you, you are perfectly free to do that as as a viewer. And I think it works on that level. But where I'm saying I'm least satisfied with that or who, what I would object to is the skeptic who says, don't you try to piece any meaning out of it because there's no meaning there to be found. There's only style. Right. So having kind of agreed that there's something meaningful here... Mm -hmm. Let's move on okay. to trying to figure out what that might be. There's three other options here. and Sort of cyclical determinism. There's no progress. There's only repetition. So I guess the question there is, do we see any meaning in the order that the iterations are given, in the outcome that they're given, any progress from one iteration to the next, or is it simply more or less the same stuff over and over again. And at that point, I, I would just key in on the word progress that you used. On the one hand, someone could say, well, there's only three iterations. How much progress can you see? But we do see the character apparently learning. One specific example is her interaction with a gun. Um, right. in, in the very first iteration, um, there is this kind of middle obstacle, she's going to see her father in a bank, and she comes upon a gun, and like she has to be told how to use the gun. In the first one, Manny has to say, this is how you use the gun. In the second iteration, when she's confronting her father with a gun, she knows how to use it. Yes, that is correct. She's learning things, which is an odd thing. 
And it you know, kind of reminds me of the Groundhog Day sort of deal where we've got a character going over and over and over the same day, but he does learn things. Right. That's a very apt comparison. She doesn't seem to be aware necessarily uh, on a conscious level in the same way mm-hmm. Groundhog Day that, hey, I'm going through the same thing, but there does seem to be these vestiges of experiences that she had in other alternate realities that have accumulated her and move her towards there. Um, right. The other thing that I would say about progress is that it seems to me if you're in, in that cyclical, determined reading of the film, then you would have to posit the fact that even though the film ends after the third iteration, that if the camera stayed on for another 10 minutes, it's not as though the problem has been solved all on Groundhog Day and the iteration stop. You would say in this particular reason, in this particular meaning or this particular reading, that there's no particular reason to think that in another five seconds if the camera had kept rolling, that the phone would ring and Lola would find herself back in the apartment, this time probably regretfully so because I just had a happy ending and now I've got to try to do it all over again. Right. And I don't think that's really the case. I think there's some kind of intent in she fails, she fails, she finally succeeds, and at the point that she succeeds, however we define success, managing to stay alive, managing to get the money, then she no longer has to go through the, the sort of uh, iteration or purgatory state or the constant repetitions. It's not endless repetition. It's repetition until she gets the outcome, and then she goes forward. That leaves us with three and four, which is, okay, is the, the positive outcome that is necessary or required in order to end this constant cycling through, is that just hit or miss, trial and error, or is there a sense in which there is some connection between progression uh, that leads us towards eventual success, or is it just a matter of going through it enough times until one of the variations ends up with a happy ending? That's a more difficult argument, I think. I'll reveal my hand a little bit here and say I'm more in agreement with your fourth option than your third option. But I do think it's a harder... It takes a little bit more to get there than than dismissing these first two possibilities. Because there is. I mean, there are these, these small little things. And for most of them, you know, we, we certainly see some interesting changes taking place. But I, I do think the way to, to get there is to not just look at one obstacle that might be changed or how our interaction changes, but we, we do have to kind of look at the whole to, to kind of get there. Well, for instance, you know, some just, readers want to zero in on the nuns. There's a scene where she runs through a group of nuns that are walking on the street, and then she gets negative karma points, right? Because, you know, it's bad that you, right. run through, you, know, you run through the nuns. And then in the iteration where it's successful, she runs around the nuns. She doesn't force them off the street. She's respectful to them. Other readers you know, want to focus on the baby carriage and the woman in the baby carriage and that she's respectful to the baby carriage. On a, maybe on a more macro level, she goes to the casino and plays the roulette wheel as opposed to robbing the bank. You know, right? Uh, and so, saying we we can't have her successfully get the twenty thousand marks by robbing the bank, because what kind of moral message or connection would we see from from cause and effect? And so, you know, there are bits of plot that would posit tantalizing little bits of 
where people make appearances or actions that appear to be in some traditional way moral or less more or less morally suspect and, and people want to tie them to to outcomes. Schiffer makes a point yeah. in the commentary that some people miss in the film that the gentleman who's actually in the ambulance uh, having a heart attack, that Lola actually goes in the ambulance in the third scene, is the same guy who stole the bike initially mm-hmm. from, right. from Monty. And so, you know, again, there's another possible connection there. He steals in one scene, and 20 minutes later, he ends up having a heart attack. Is that just coincidence, or is the movie positing something about you? You have enough sort of coincidences around these moral grounds. Is it trying to sort of say an accumulation of moral decisions leads you down a path that's more likely to success? And the interesting thing about that ambulance scene as well is not just the negative part of this guy stole a bike and now he's in the ambulance, but it's also her reaction to him is she is very compassionate to him. I mean, she's in the middle of trying to save Manny and doing all these things, and yet she takes the time to hold his hand and provide comfort. And it's almost reminiscent. It's almost sorry to interrupt you. It's almost reminiscent yeah. of that scene in the Bible, you know, where Jesus is going off to heal Jerry. I think it's Jairus's daughter, and he's touched by a woman who is sick, who has been chronically ill, and the healing power goes out of him. And he stops and says, "Who touched me?" And everyone's all concerned, saying, "Oh, you know, what are you doing? What are you stopping? We've got an important place to go to." And yet he has, he shows or demonstrates that the person in front of you is very important and not just to be ignored or rushed past. And so she shows, uh, again, a traditional sort of moral quality that is, is venerated or is generally praised in Judeo-Christian thinking. And again, that ends up being the iteration where she ends up being more successful. Right. So I and that specific connection in terms of her actions towards him. Right. And those are all, I mean, those are all very positive sort of pieces of evidence for, you know, the more moral reading. The one, the one change that at least is, it feels problematic to me is in the cartoon section. It, one of the things that happens when she answers the phone, she runs out the door and every iteration, when she's running down the stairs, it turns into this little cartoon. And in the first iteration, she runs by a man with a dog, and they just run by. The second iteration, the man with the dog, the man sticks his leg out and trips her. She tumbles down the stairs and spends part of the iteration then limping. In that third iteration, she leaps over his outstretched leg. And Another example of learning, just like the gun. Right, learning. And, but yet, this is one of the, the, the changes where I'm having a hard time seeing it be anything moral. You know, it, it's not that she is taking care, you know, like with the nuns, it's not like she's just blindly running into them for previous iterations and then decides, oh, I need to take care and not run into people. Yeah, this is this. It's actually avoiding somebody who is doing something to her. That's the one, one of these little pieces. I I don't know how to fit that in. 
Well, I have two thoughts about the dog. One is, of course, that scene could be used not in support of option number four, but option number three, which is to say the changes are random you know, mm. or chaos. Mm-hmm. There's, there's no necessary connection between the decisions that she makes uh, other than she's more efficient because she has this knowledge that she is intuited from the other iterations, but that the reality is is that the, the message is making a small change will have a big effect or a big change, but there's no moral connection or there's no moral reward. There's no hand that's steering her or guiding her in the right direction. That's just an example of of a random change and you know the ultimate message is change one small thing and everything else you know everything else changes as opposed to there being a master plan that there's some variation within so i i think really the dog is one of those instances where he seems to be pushing you towards oh it's all random and now mm-hmm. i suppose the other thought the second thought is one could come up with an eastern notion of karma that suggests that there is, in some Eastern religions, karma is not just being rewarded for the good that you do, but also being rewarded for the evil that is done to you. Um, Mm. I remember in the World Religion course, I took an undergraduate, they were talking about reincarnation, and if you're good, you come back in a higher form, and if you're bad, you come back in a lower form. And one of the students asked what seemed to me the eminently reasonable question of, well, okay, what does it mean to be a good teachy fly? Or how can you come back as a higher form? Well, I've, I've lived a good life as a teachy fly. And the teacher said, well, in that case, it's not so much that you have done good as a teachy fly. It's that by someone else swatting you for no reason, you have absorbed the evil and therefore accumulated karma points on the positive side of the ledger. And so there is a sense where by being victimized by this guy in the the first iteration that she has experienced in suffering in almost a a purgatory sort of way, and that after she has experienced enough negative karma, uh, she has righted the scales and is therefore now worthy, not because of anything that she did, but because Mm -hmm. the scales are tilted in a kind of a Boethian wheel of fortune sort of way for uh, the wheel to turn back up again. Uh, so those are my two thoughts about the dogs. I don't know if either of those resonates with you. What do you think? I mean, they're both eminently reasonable. I don't know where we go from there. Well, really. I mean, in some ways, we're we're back to the ambiguity that we talked about in the Harry Potter podcast, which is to say, okay, there are clues that seem to point us in one direction. It's random. Clues that seem to point us in another direction. Of perhaps there's a moral accounting or a moral connection between action and consequence. So is this ambiguity a sense of uh, a product of Pickworth's confusion, uh, an illustration of the fact that we have in the Western postmodern world confused notions of sometimes we think there's a connection between cause and effect and sometimes we think it's just random? Or is this perhaps him being more of an actual embodying a mystery or illustrating a mystery or is it just mushy? I tend to think because I, I've seen enough of Pickworth's films that I give him the benefit of the doubt that he's embodying the mystery rather than just being confused. Mm-hmm. But I've certainly, I, I think it's a valid response for some people to say, I'm not so sure. I think maybe in uh, one point he seems to be saying X and another point he seems to be saying Y. 
as I, as you're talking, I'm 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 almost thinking of a third option, mm-hmm. which you know, and really, you know, and this is certainly coming from a a very you know Western Christian idea. There is this notion that, on the one hand, yes, we've you know Lola, you know, she has her mission, she's learning, she is progressing towards success, and there are these moral lessons that she's learning, and that's great. But there is also, in real life, there are those people out there, they're acting on their own free will as well, and their free will is to do negative things. Right. And perhaps in this tight little 20-minute world that Tipper's creating, in a sense, couldn't the, the man and the dog you know, be that force? That, in a sense, no, it isn't so much the moral lesson of... Lola learning a moral lesson about her own behavior. It's just this is part of this is part of the world, right? That you know, it, it's not so much chaos or random as much as it is another person acting out on their own agency, which does yeah. make things rather complicated. I want to throw a further monkey wrench in there because I was roughly satisfied after thinking about the film with option number four. But remember, I put in 4B with that that sort of moral cause and effect of there being some tenuous connection between our actions and their consequences. Mm -hmm. But this was further complicated for me. I just went back today when we had decided to watch the film and looked at the red scenes, not just the scenes that they're uh, where we're having the iterations. But in between each iteration, there are these scenes where Lola is, before we flash back to the beginning, is on the bed with Monty. There's a red filter, and they have these philosophical conversations about love and and what what does that mean. And you had tied that to the L.A. quote of always going back to the same question. So I went back and I watched those scenes. And then I watched them with Tickworth's commentary and the the Blu-ray DVD, uh, Tikwer and Franca Potent have commentary where they're talking about the scene. And Tikwer says a couple of interesting things about those scenes in in the camera. Um, The first thing that he says that I thought was very interesting is what I'll call the red scenes or the bed scenes are for him, and he uses the word, the heart of the movie. Um, Hmm. The second thing that he says that I think is very interesting is that these are the scenes that are celebrating love. The third thing that I think he says that's very interesting is that the red scenes were not in the first draft of the script and that the producer of the film came to him. Franca Potent says, you know, the first script I read, they weren't in here. How, you know, when did these scenes come up? I really liked them, but, you know, uh, why did you put them in? And he says the producer of the film came to him and said, there's something missing. We've got all of this style. We've got all of this. It's a great movie, but there's something missing. And in talking about, well, what's missing, how would the film be different without those red scenes? The producer said to take work, we have to find out something in this movie. And so I think those Mm. were very interesting statements that in some way, the the red scenes are what we find out. They are the, in Jewish sense, the commentary 
that there's the script or the story, the historical narrative, but then we also have embedded within the narrative the commentary about the narrative. And so I think in some ways then uh, the fact that Kickworth says this is the heart of the movie and that what we find out in the movie, that the movie is celebrating love, I think pushes us towards the notion that it's not even so much the difference in terms of why Lola is able to bend or shape reality and keep coming back until she finds a solution. It doesn't have to do with a, a moral growth in the Christian sense so much as I want it to be, but in a romantic, in a capital R, like romantic mm-hmm, literature, right. notion of the transcendence of love, that love empowers us Love conquers us all. Love gives us these godlike qualities, and it is the it is the breath and the nature of her love for Monty that allows her to keep going back and doing this over and over again until she finds the right solution. And so that seems to me a mix of a kind of a randomness that is to say there's a little bit of trial and error into it, but it's at least positing an answer. Remember in Harry Potter podcast, we said, it's okay to posit an alternate reality, but I want to, I want to know what the rules are. Why does Harry get to right. decide whether he's dead or not? You know, why does Lola get to decide? No, I, I don't accept being dead. And ultimately, I wonder if there isn't this romantic notion of the strongest power in the universe is love. And if your love is strong enough, it's not like a Judeo-Christian if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you can move mountains. It's more of a traditional, secular, romantic notion of if your love is strong enough, then you can move mountains or you can have power over life and death. Uh, what do you think mm. about that? Those middle, those red sections, certainly, first one, you know, she's asking, do you love me? And like every other male on the planet, he's sort of dumbfounded by this question. Gives an answer, and it is. I mean, it's a very, in some ways, it's very typical. Right now, uh, at this moment, I love you. Yes. <laughs> but the way that she does, you know, she ends it. She makes this this defiant almost statement, and that is what starts things over again. And then in the second red scene, kind of turn the tables, and it's it's Manny asking her, "What would you do?" if I died. And in some ways it's the same question, but that ends with her saying, you're not dead yet. And we restart. And yeah, that this idea of love, even though in one sense he is dead because she's remembering that scene, um, right. Ostensibly while she's dying or while he's dying. Yeah. We, we perhaps don't want to think of that through too deeply. (laughs) (laughs) But no, I, yeah, I think that your explanation does then give, you know, what is the connection between these red scenes and then the action scenes? If it isn't some sense that there is, the, you know, there, her love specifically, her love for Manny is is what's keeping this whole thing going. And even in the action scene themselves, at towards the beginning, he's freaking out about what am I going to do, what am I going to do, and her constant refrain to him is, don't worry, I'll do something. So it's all about her somehow saving the day. And you get the impression that she's done this before, not the specific thing, but that she's often getting him out of jams. 
so, you know, perhaps there is something there that this is, you know, love will conquer all, which seems a little simplistic, though, for the, the way this whole thing's going. Well, I don't know that she's simplistic. I, I, what I would say is that's a somewhat simplistic answer. Mm-hmm. You know, what is the meaning of life? Oh, well, it's about love and love conquers all. Having said that, I've spent the bulk of my academic career as a literature professor and, and a film critic spending a good deal of time thinking about modernism and postmodernism. And, and I would really call Ron Lohler on a postmodern film, at least thematically, uh, sure. philosophically. And one of the traits of modernism or postmodernism that I talk about with my students in the 20th century is this notion of in modernism, you get a rejection of traditional historical narratives, meta-narratives, value statements, religious faith. So we don't believe any of that anymore. But it's like they throw out the old before they really settle on the new. And there's this initial period of sort of saying, well, okay, I'm confident that we'll find something to replace religion, whether it's art or the artists or social justice or something. And yet, very quickly, people realize that you can't, I don't want to say you can't, a lot of people claim to do that, but, but it's very hard to live without some sort of purpose, without some sort of center, without some sort of belief in a transcendent truth or purpose in one's life. I, I understand atheism as a philosophical construct, but I don't understand how people actually live that way. It's like if you really do believe, well, life is meaningless, and then after you die, you cease to exist, and there's no meaning to any of it. It just is. It just is. And then afterwards, there's there's no accounting. You know, you're mm-hmm. dead. That that seems to depress people and lead to this kind of existential crisis. Of it's got to mean something. Um, and so I, I, I do see in the film both a, a kind of mirror to the postmodern confusion of we long for there to be something that transcends the chaotic to. To, we recoil at the notion that it's just chance. It can't just. It can't be chance. Now, now I'm sounding like Magnolia. It can't just be chance. It can't just be randomness. <laughs> you know, there's got to be. There's got to be something. Until there is something, we will cling to the notions, however cliche that they that they seem to be. Love, God, <laughs> religion, family. Until someone gives me something better to believe in, I'm going to I'm going to pitch my tent here because I got to be you know because it's just too painful to not believe in anything, and so right. I'm not quite ready to go back to Christian truth or religious truth or bring God into it. But there's the sense in which love seems to be a little bit more new agey or spiritual in a sense without being religious that feels safe enough for me to at least allow for the possibility that there is some sort of transcendent difference that's attainable and and yet not limited to people of a particular religious doctrine or dogma or persuasion. Well, and if we run with that a little bit, something that is starting to at least gain perhaps some significance for me is that one of Lola's characteristics in all of the iterations, is that at some point she lets loose with this primal scream. Yes. That 
that just tends to stop. It breaks glass. It stops everybody in their tracks. She's and her barbaric yelp. If I yes, <laughs> yes. And the first couple of times it happens, it just it does seem like you know she's either very frustrated or you know she's just had enough of some situation, and this is kind of her way of stopping it. But I, I found it very interesting in the last iteration. You've you made an oblique reference to this before. Instead of robbing the bank, she goes to this casino and plays roulette and you know plops all of her money down and keeps letting it ride, which is just you know insane to do when you're playing roulette. But one of the back to the cyclical or the random no sinister, right. you know. She's got an eternity to do it, an eternity of iteration. She can go play roulette until she gets one. Thinking about this idea of love being her purpose and her grasping onto this in a very primal way, when she gets to the last play, time is running out. She's got enough riding that if she wins, she's going to have the amount of money that she needs. And she's intently focused on the wheel, and she lets loose with a scream. And it is almost as though that scream is controlling the wheel. At that point, she is so filled, she's so anxious to save Manny, all she can do is let loose with this barbaric, primal energy. And that saves the day. This rumination on love, romantic love, in a sense, is starting to make some more sense of that for me. Right. Um, my my essay in Faith and Spirituality in Masters of, of World Cinema, when I was talking about Tickwar, I actually start with a quote from Tickwar in a that he mentions in a documentary called Lubitsch in Berlin, which is about the Hollywood film producer Ernst Lubitsch, who had spent some time in Berlin doing German expressionism and Tickwar being German, was very influenced by Lubitsch. But here's what he says about his, here's what Tickworth says about his own fascination with Lubitsch. He says, to me, the most decisive aspect of the Lubitsch touch is always the principle of hope. After watching his films, I felt optimistic, as if I could go through life and smile about the insanity that rains down on us. That's why those films have a medicinal effect. It's why they leave you with a certain addiction, because they don't blur your sight. They focus it on conditions, and they force you to take on a mild-mannered air and a sense of gentleness and a positive attitude and to stand up and say, I won't despair no matter what. And that was a quote that was very influential for me in thinking about where he's coming from and reading through in in Run, Lola, Run, I, I tie it back to the notion of of postmodernism and the postmodern existential despair to sort of say, I do have all of this despair welling up within me in terms of, you know, some kind of primal stream that, you know, is life pointless? Is life meaningless? Is there no connection between what I do and the outcome? Does none of it necessarily matter? And the more I think about that, the more, to borrow Tickworth's term, I feel insanity raining down on me, whether it's philosophical insanity or intellectual insanity or, or spiritual crisis, the more I'm prone to despair. 
and that it's just interesting to me that that he says the most decisive aspect of this filmmaker that he was you know almost addicted to was that it gave him some sense of hope or some principle mm. of of hope that that sort of says you know it's almost an addiction to hope i I don't know where hope comes from, and I can't logically say why my postmodern presuppositions don't lead to if you logically work me through it then yeah, I sent to say that there's no reason to hope, and yet I can't live that way. That just leads to a barbaric scream, but not not even maybe a barbaric scream, but a barbaric lament. And there's mm-hmm. a sense in which that cry at the heart is a cry of pain, it's a cry of despair, and is a, is a lament for the notion that I can't change anything, that I'm hopeless, that I am despairing. And you know, at that particular point, Tickler is not willing to leave her in that position and says, I have to postulate some, I have to take away her despair the same way that Lubitsch took away mine. You know, and on what basis can I do that? And the only basis that he can find, I think absent God uh, you know, or religion, is this almost cult religion of love, that love takes on the role of God in almost an idolatrous way and says, if you love enough, I'm going to put my hope in love. You know, I'm going to put my faith in love, uh, not necessarily my, my faith in God or my faith in the state or my faith in science or you know anything else. I'm that's where I'm gonna. That's where I'm all in, metaphorically speaking. And then, however the cards fall down, that's that's what I'm putting in the roulette wheel of life, in the wheel of fortune. He's he's cashing in and putting his bet down on love and saying, okay, let's see where the wheel lands. Well, and it's after that she wins, she leaves the casino, she gets into the ambulance, and her first action is to show compassion, to show love. Right. To this dying man that she doesn't know, but still, it is that hope, that idea that through compassion, she's in a sense changed here, she's won her bet. And then she's dropped off in the middle of this intersection waiting for Manny. And in this iteration, all works out well. And what I would say about that interpretation, I I mean, we try to make a point in this podcast that you and I are both Christian. You know, we're not exclusively Christian in the films that we look at, but we look at, we come to things from a Christian point of view. I think that would explain both the way the film resonates with some Christians but also some of the trepidations or pauses that we have, because on one sense, you can sort of make that spiritually compatible with the Christian notion of the world. God is love. Jesus is love. The important thing about Jesus is that he teaches us how to love and that love is the most important value. And so, yeah, I can make that fit. But on the other hand, it it can also tend towards one that we're a little skeptical of, which is to say it's almost like a faith in faith or a contentless faith that love Mm -hmm. becomes a very mushy rhetorical word or love like God that doesn't really mean anything, just becomes a Deridian signifier or sign that posts what we have to assent to or agree to, but the definition of what love is or what love means has become so diluted or so contentlessness that, that it, it it runs the risk of being meaningless outside of 
particular frame of reference, then that love just becomes a word, you know, becomes a word that could mean the love of God, agape, or could mean just eros in the sense of the way uh, Lola loves money um, right. or, or romance in, in that particular way. And, and so, I mean, I think there is both this sort of glimmer of, if you're coming at it from a Christian point of view, I would say glimmer or gl- we get glances at truths, but the more and more that I that I interact with Tikkor, the more I, as a Christian viewer, tend to see him as a truth seeker who occasionally catches glimpses of truth, you know, and is seeking right. them, but not so much as a truth proclaimer. That is to say, I've I've gone through life and I've decided what I think the truth is, and therefore I'm going to uh, illustrate it for you and move you through it into teleological conclusion. And that's part of what actually I love about the films is that they're very messy, but they're not dogmatic treatises. They're more just kind of like uh, testimonials to here I am wrestling with these great questions uh, and here are the questions that I've answered. Here are the ones I haven't yet answered. Uh, Does that make any sense? I think it does. Trying to make sense of the messiness or the ambiguity that we were already sensing in this film. I mean, it's not. And I think... I think we can argue that most great art is not simple and it's not always clean in terms of it's not a clear message sort of idea. It's a real wrestling with complex ideas that sometimes does get a little messy and hopefully we can engage with and participate in the messiness you know, find something of value there. You know, as this person is seeking, maybe they can illuminate things for us. Right, because we're, unless you're the most dogmatic of Christians, too, you know, we're seeking, too. There is that Christian notion of you see through a glass darkly, which is to say there are some truths that we think that we have seen, but we have seen them imperfectly in our own imperfection, and therefore when other people, be they Christian or secular or undeclared, if I'll use the political word, will catch glimpses of truth, and hopefully we can benefit from that as well. Yes. We're, uh, that was my beeper going off to remind me that we are over time or out of time. So uh, anything else you want to add, Todd? This has been a full conversation. All righty then. Thank you, everyone, for listening. This concludes this episode of The Thin Place. As always, if you have questions, comments, or suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. If you've got a film that you'd like to hear us talk about at The Thin Place, drop us a note at thethinplace at filmgeekradio.com. You can also follow Ken on Twitter at twitter.com backslash Ken Morefield or onemorefilmblog.com. This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio! Yeah!